0: Big Thinking About the Future from the IF Conference 2011. Ian Sinclair, author. Ghost Milk, calling time on the Grand Project. Well, what I am here, in a sense, um, is redundant. You know, I'm, I'm a human being talking to human beings. There's nothing going to happen up here. There's no clicking, there's just, there's just me, a voice, and a few ideas. It's going to be the equivalent of a very old-fashioned thing, a walk, which is why I can't hand and over and deliver what I'm going to say in advance, because I don't know. It's a response to what I've seen, it's a response to this room. We've heard the word dichotomy used quite a lot, and there's a very interesting dichotomy to me already between the contemporary nature of the presentations, the way that the images um, access quite complicated ideas into diagrammatic forms and the nature of the building itself, because I couldn't help drifting off to the panels around the walls and the knowledge of this what this society is and how people have come back from their travels and presented exotic worlds to us. What happens when people give talks, so I'm told, and this is why I slightly regret that that I don't have those wonderful images that were in the last talk, is that you're only going to listen to one minute, and then you go off into a reverie, and then if I can signal that it's nearly finishing, you'll listen to the last minute. So think of it that way. Think of it as a talk. And I'm changing my title as well because uh, I love that phrase of uh, Greg Offer's, range anxiety. Well, that's it. That's absolutely it. That's, that's the whole thing that I do, is range anxiety. And one of the ways you can, you can decide how a city is working and what a city is and its nature is by the number of people who overtake you as you walk. Um, I've been walking and exploring the what's now known as liminal zones of East London for about 40 years. And it's not just getting old. I think I still plod along at much the same dogged, determined speed is that now I'm overtaken constantly as I move. Um, even people who look to me very old are in this range anxiety. They have to be somewhere, and where they have to be is not where they are, because they've all got these devices in their hands which they're anxiously fiddling with, and, and there are other ones with clamped to the head which would have been bedlamite a few centuries ago, but now there's this kind of babble of electronic stuff and you're not where you are. So the little particulars that surround you, that are the things that attract me and are important to me, are not there. I said at the beginning I was redundant. At the end of the last talk, we had a very beautiful image of a sperm whale oil lamp. And I remember talking to the poet Ed Dawn and we were talking about what what is redundant in the contemporary world, and he was talking about a particular kind of difficult modern poetic, a way of looking at the world and wrestling with language that he'd been involved with for so long. He said it's now redundant. But wait a minute, redundancy is beautiful. There's nothing more beautiful than the light of an oil lamp in in a, a log cabin somewhere out in Wichita. And that image of the oil lamp was so fascinating in terms of what's happened to London. Uh, Where the Millennium Dome has grown up on on the East Greenwich Peninsula was exactly the site where vats were for boiling up whale blubber, whale oil, and creating this beautiful soft light that was the light of the Victorian city. One of the people who made his fortune from that was a man called Elhanan Bicknell, and he moved into the suburbs of South London. As you do, another way that the city defines itself is you create wealth in the grungiest, dirtiest parts, and you shift it out, and you move into, until you find yourself living next to John Ruskin. And having made his fortune from whale oil, he then commissioned Turner to do some paintings, beautiful paintings, of whale hunts. This is kind of conf- paralleling Melville and the white whale. And these, these paintings were duly delivered to Bicknell in his, in his uh, house down in wherever he was in South London, Herne Hill. And um, he took out his handkerchief and, and cleaned off a couple of corners and started to correct C- Turner's painting, which is what you feel you can do. You can revise the world if you've got enough money and if the whale oil is there behind you. But we, we don't do that so well. We created this dome. We created this tent which had no content, which was one of those things. The kind of presentations looked wonderful. The computer-generated version played beautifully, but there wasn't really anything there. It was a kind of emptiness. And it became... It, it, it stayed empty for a long time, and I thought at that point it was extremely interesting. When the site was, was abandoned and nature came in, and the weeds started to come up, and the sites that were supposed to be car parks were nothing. This argument between what nature is and how we impose these versions on it became very pertinent. And uh, that, of course, couldn't be allowed to happen because the the economics of the thing are something else. And it's rebranded as the O2 arena. And it works very well by deciding that you can bring back the dead. So you start with the King Tut, and something nearly as old, the Rolling Stones, and then you bring back Michael Jackson, who is actually dead, and it doesn't matter. And Julie Andrews, who can no longer sing, but it doesn't matter either. So they pour in, and this thing that's been rebranded, it's still this tame tent. It looks like a chunk of the Trafford Centre is, is now very successful, except that you can't get away from it, because the, the old grungy nature of London and its transport system is so awful that... Uh, When the light heavyweight champion of the world wins his fight there, he finds he can't leave the car park for two hours. There's a huge traffic jam, and he has to walk back to his home uh, eight miles away in South London. Strange times. With the Olympics coming up yet again, it can no longer be the O2 Arena. The O2 Arena is going to feature, but they are not one of the sponsors of the Olympics. So the name for the period of the Olympic Games is rebranded yet again into something else. So the names of the cities become infinitely flexible in the same sense that if you wanted to go and find the University of Greenwich... You wouldn't look in Greenwich. You have to start down in Woolwich. These these things kind of drift outwards. It's a very peculiar world. And the the contrary to this world is a person talking of travels. And I was looking wonderfully at the way that the the electric car had made its journey down that side of America, which is a journey I, I had just done myself not long ago. And I was in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains because I'd gone to see the poet Gary Snyder. And it was an amazing uh, description of how you would get there. He described, you cross such and such a creek, you go through these woods, you pass the old mining camp, you'll see the Indian, you know, so on and so on. So eventually, after all this journey, standing in in this ancient forest, at a distance, he says, it's rather like this, the 15 minutes, he said, come at 12 o'clock. I I know that he was there precisely at 12 o'clock, his dog beside him. And if we'd arrived at, Two minutes past 12, he'd have been gone. He was there. And, and we spoke at length. And why, why I'm drawing this in is because he was a, a prophet of the local. He believed, and he moved there in the 1970s, that you could set up your own home. You could bring a region back. He talks about bioregionality. The living with wilderness, the understanding of wilderness. He says, it's always been a part of basic human experience, to live in a culture of wilderness. Nature is not a place to visit, it's home. And I thought, this is it. And his home was so different to my previous concept of it, because what I, what I realized was, we're always thinking of that as the West, and going to see Snyder was a journey for me across America to the West, but my West was his East. He looks East. He doesn't look... He looks in the same direction, but he's going east because he's going to China and Japan. And he's somebody who goes there and goes through the rigor and the discipline of tra- training as a Zen monk. But he also spends time as a laboring man. He understands the logging industries. He works on container ships. So he's part of, he knows something about what oil really means in the world because he's worked on the engines of the ships. And at the end of all that, he was saying, there is a hope. I'd gone there because I'd become depressed by what was happening locally, the sense of enclosure, the sense of disappearance of my local wilderness. And he was saying, no, the city is as much part of nature as where we are now, that we can form communities, we can make links. I'm not cut off from technology. I'm totally self-sufficient and independent. He had generators there. He had solar heating. Initially, when he lived there, he wasn't connected to the phone lines or anything. He goes on the Internet, but he, he stays rigorously to a certain period of the day. He goes through his disciplines, his religious and meditation, and he's able to write and to communicate and to be part of a whole network who are bringing stretches of America back to life. And I contrasted this with what I'd seen as the domination locally of these unreal versions, these... these Beautifully depicted versions of things that don't exist and can't exist. And when you try to push into that landscape, which was an old, old uh, wilderness of the best kind, it was being at home in nature in a certain part of London that was there because it, it held the ghosts of the, of the post-industrial world. It, it held the ghosts of what had been an imaginative moment, the, in, the invention of plastics, the making of gunpowder out of factories that had once done gin, um, enormous industries, and sc- then going down to scrap metal and manor garden allotments, a strange mixture, where the urban and the pastoral combined in an interesting way. But it was, it was a non-narrated landscape. There had been no official version of this. It didn't fit in with the picture. And so the, uh, the explainers, when I talk about improving the image of destruction... Everything is sloganized, everything is over-explained, and everything is the opposite of what it actually is. So that if someone tells you this was a wasteland, they mean that they are actually creating a wasteland and a different kind of wasteland. If they say there was nothing there, there was. I talked to the only human left in the immediate vicinity, who's an old barber of 76 years old, And he said, well, before this all started, I I was very, very busy. There were numerous small factories around me. There were lots of little things going on. They weren't very spectacular or glamorous, but I was part of a real community. And that community is dispersed to create something else, which seems bigger and better, which is an enormous uh, shopping mall, Westfield, which you can walk through from the station and as a small satellite called an Olympic stadium. And that is the only access to it is through Westfield. And, and uh, if you uh, disagree with this version of the world, you, you become a kind of non-person. So for being critical of the Olympic Games in, a, in an essay in London Review of Books, I was not allowed to go into Hackney Libraries anymore. Extremely weird. Um, went on to Westfield with, with a BBC crew who were doing a news report. And I just said what I just said now, that the only access to the Olympic Stadium is through the West. They said, get out, you know, move out. You can't say this here. This is a, this is a, this is a zone that is beyond criticism. And that, that is um, strange and depressing. Uh, I went, moved away from this to see what happened when you got to Greece. And in Athens... Of course, you've got the kind of end game of this idea of the grand project. You have these magnificent, stunning stadia in beautiful settings, completely abandoned and just become money pits. They haven't got the the wherewithal to support them in a a collapsing economy. And, And what I found beautiful in that urban step is the way that the official narrative is subverted, The overpasses and the underpasses and the stilted highways and the giant hoardings and the irrigation ditches and the empty canals and the mesh fences and the graffiti-splashed junction boxes form an edgy parkland into which anything could happen. Permitted paths vanish into dunes of landfill, into neurotic traffic, into functioning rail tracks and tramways. But the old road, the ghost road, the one that was there before all this madness, has become a favoured route for joggers and cyclists. The Olympic Park, that corrupted legacy, is like mid-period Fellini. Across the coastal road and over the tracks is an area of balconied flats and steel blue offices and sex clubs with screaming scarlet promises. And the final doodle on the whiteboard marking the end of the Olympic zone confirms it as a theme park without content that heaven must want for spectators. A filmmaker called Aristotelis, a former student of architecture, explained it to me. The games are just empty buildings. We have no use for them, but they have become monuments so we can handle them and live with them because we're used to living among ruins. They were just ruins. They were never anything else. So if we're prepared to accept a kind of culture of ruins, this. Uh, This vision of of creating uh, astonishing futures out of wildernesses uh, may may be revised in some ways. It's a difficult and a dangerous process and what has to be remembered is that almost everything that is being promised and delivered was there already. I mean that in, in the late 19th century a man with a with a public house in Hackney Wick decided he would stage his own Olympics. He built a little cinder track at the back of the pub which used the new railway embankments as the, as the stands for the spectators. It was an enormous success. People came from all over London. He brought Native American runners. He brought runners from, from the colonies of the time and, and put them up against English athletes and, and had this amazing event in his own backyard, made enough money to support the Lancashire cotton workers. Um, and when it was all over, it went away. And at the same time, people were coming into this area, the Eton Mission and Eton Manor, and were creating um, cultural events as well as sporting events. They they bought up parts of Hackney Marshes and gave them to the people for playing fields, um, a large chunk of which has now been taken over for parking areas for the VIPs. It created rowing clubs on the River Lee, it developed everything that has now actually disappeared, so that the the sense of being given something is something that was there all along. And that's that's a difficult thing. We have such a a short memory span that we do need to kind of honor the templates that were there before and to understand that the evolving city also depends on a city that's vanishing and that is important to remember. Um, And I'll finish by... um, Just reading a fragment of what we also need to remember is is that it's extraordinary how we've picked the most difficult and toxic site to work with because among the cargoes transported down the railway line through the heart of London's major development where the site of countless people will soon be arriving from across the globe for the great B&Q self-assembly Olympics are flasks containing highly radioactive nuclear fuel rods shipped from Sizewell in Suffolk. When the Nuclear Trains Action Group contracted the Olympic Development Authority to ask if the convoys would continue to run through the period of the Games, they received no reply. It was only when I studied privately commissioned reports of investigations into extensive radioactive contamination of the 2012 site, I appreciated the implication of punctured water pipes gushing into the River Lee. The disposal cell holding many tons of treated and untreated soil is in layers under a permeable skin is positioned right here. As Ian Griffiths revealed in an article in The Guardian, documents obtained under the Freedom of Information rules reveal that, contrary to government guidelines, waste from thorium and radium is mixed with very low-level waste and buried in a so-called disposal cell, a cell placed about 500 metres to the north of the Olympic Stadium. You could not nominate in all of London more challenging ground for a landscape blitz, a ticking-clock assault on the devastated residue of industrial history, Insecticide and fertilizer works, paint factories, distillers of gin, gas mantle manufacturers, bone grinders, seething dunes of radiant maggots. This was where London University carried out experiments with a now decommissioned nuclear reactor. This is an area so far off the official map, so hidden within a nexus of dark waterways, that it functioned as the dumping ground of choice, what Bill Parry-Davis refers to as an uncontrolled deposits of radioactive thorium. In the Lee Bank Square estate, residents are concerned about dust from the Olympic site. A recognized pathway to contamination, Parry-Davis said, is by a person inhaling radioactive dust particles. Thorium is particularly hazardous. On the estate, as the summer barbecue season opened, families found themselves literally eating a relish of airborne dust, a mega-chili bite on their steaks and sausages. When their worries were published on a website, the ODA threatened the Lee Bank whistleblowers with legal proceedings and sent in a dust-sweeping vehicle to patrol. Rumours were rife. I was told that the only consequence of the remediating exercise was to spread low-level radioactivity across the entire landscape of the Olympic enclosure, the divided fiefdoms of competing contractors. Toxic soil, removed from the stadium, was stored alongside bundles of Japanese knotweed, suggesting delirious quater-mass mutations. Vegetal triffid creatures slouching towards Westfield to be born. So those are the various uh, futures that are flickering in front of us. A future of very interesting ruins, made by architects at very expensive prices, a future of brand new grand project swimming pools provided at the cost of the disappearance of 14 or 15 local ones which have not been given the funding to continue. So we're in a moment when when the local, which I don't want to be sentimental about entirely, is threatened. And I think we need to look hard at what we can do in our own local communities to build the thing up organically from the ground up in the way that Snyder has done in creating a house in the Sierra Nevada and also to keep in link with the world at large and to go about doing talking and, and making his vision of the world come through and also um, not to be terrified of, of what the future comes because some of these visions of things we've seen are going to make the world better and easier and smoother but we can't do it one way. We've got to be able to go backwards and forwards in time. and. Uh, talking of that, I think time is gone. Thank you. For more big thinking about the future, go to iq2if.com.